G'day there, and welcome to episode four of Journey on the GAN. I'm Michael Turtle from the travel blog Time Travel Turtle. In this podcast series, we've been traveling from the north to the south of Australia on board the luxury train, the GAN, through some of the harshest terrain on the planet. It's a 3,000 kilometer journey, but there are some great stops along the way in the outback. In this episode, we've reached the center of Australia, and it's time to explore one of the country's most important landmarks. <coughs> Give me a quick brief, same as any airliner, say, plug her in, tighten her up, release by pulling that flicky there. So I'm at an airport, probably not what you expected for a story about a train journey, but let me explain. After the first night on the GAN, the trains arrived this morning at Alice Springs, about 1,500 kilometres south of Darwin. Alice Springs has a population of about 30,000 people and is surrounded by red desert. The train's going to stop here until the evening, so there's plenty of time for passengers to do some excursions. My chosen excursion involves a plane. So I'll hand you over to Captain Rodriguez who will call out a set of names. So if you just have a look and uh, identify. Almost all the tours are included in the price of the GAN expedition, but there are some optional extras you can pay for. One of them is a flight to Uluru. The iconic red rock in the centre of Australia would take about six hours to drive to from Alice Springs, but the flight is only 50 minutes. Plus, there are going to be some great views we'll along the way. Going down, you'll cross the Fink River. Fink River is geologically the oldest river system in the world. Forget the Nile, forget the Orinoco, the Mississippi, anything else you want to name, because all of those rivers have changed course whereas the thing has stayed on the same course. The plane's got room for about 10 people, but at least everyone gets a window seat. I'm settled in now, so it looks like it's time for takeoff. Our pilot for the flight there and back today is Brenton Walsh. So um, I've been flying in the Alice for about a month now only, um, so I've sort of been floating around Australia for a little bit and just came up here to, to see a new part of Australia. It's part of the journey of being a pilot, I find, is, is seeing new things all the time. I'll chat a bit more to Brenton later, but for now let's focus on Uluru. It's been about 30 minutes in the plane and I think I can see Uluru. Except that Brenton is shaking his head. This is actually Mount Connor, which looks pretty similar and is known as Full Aru because it fools so many people like me. Five minutes later though, I do see the real thing. It's stunning from the air, rising up from so much flat earth around it. On the ground, I meet our guide for the day, Nadia Wallace. Straight away, we jump in her van and head off towards the rock. Alright, so welcome aboard. My name is Nadia and in the other bus is Elsa and we'll be with you for the duration of your stay here. We are heading Nadia isn't from here and she isn't indigenous. She's from Melbourne but she's come up here to work for the last nine years during the busy season. This is a, a beautiful place here. What, what, do you, what do you think when you come here every day and, and see this rock in front of you? Uh, I just love the colours. I love how beautiful it is it's big and it has a presence when you get up close it it looms in front of you it's large and it, it is it's powerful it you know it feels 
it feels very special when you're up close. And it is a sacred site, most of it, and you can you can kind of understand it, can't you? I mean, what do you what do you feel when you look at it and you think about the the history and the culture as well as of the the big red thing? Yeah. Well. It amazes me to think that the Anangu people have been living here for over 20,000 years and so the, their first interaction with non-Anangu people was only in the 1870s and before that they were eating the fruits and the seeds and sheltering under the trees, using fire. Um, it was a very tough existence. They did it for thousands of years. From a distance, it looks as you might expect, you know, the way it looks on all the posters you've seen. As you get closer, you can see it's really different though. Nadia takes us to the Mutajulu waterhole where we get out for a walk. Walking amongst the gum trees, there are birds jumping between branches. There's green grass on the ground and some orange boulders scattered around. I sort of imagined it, kind of because you see it that way, to be just this shiny big red thing that comes up out of the earth. But actually, there is so much little detail, I guess. Some of that is just natural erosion and so on, but it was probably always like that, wasn't it? How, how would you describe it for people so I don't have to do it myself here? <laughs> yeah, so it's a, it's a sedimentary rock and it's, when it was under the ground, it was tilted on its side. So since it's become exposed, the wind and the rain really has eaten out ripples and gorges. There's a lot of undulations in it and, um, and some bits that look like honeycomb, just the way that the water has trickled down through the rock and loosened sections of it to create those caves. Yeah. The bits that look like honeycomb, you know, those shapes caused by erosions and the bits of rock that jut out. To the local Anangu people, they were all used in stories that were passed down through the generations. These stories were essentially lessons of history and parables on how to live your life. We're standing in the area near the waterhole where these stories would have been told to groups of children. So at the, um, at the waterhole, for instance, there's a, a story which, you know, we don't, don't need to go into all the details, but uh, the way that the, the things you see on the rock to fit in with the story is quite magical, isn't it? It is, yes. And to think that um, when you look at those markings on the rock and you hear the story and you hear the lessons about, um, about what's happened there, uh, that it's the same story that Anangu people have been teaching each other for, you know, for years and years and years. Kids have been learning those same things um, yeah, for, for a long, long time. Uh, what are some of the, the stories or, or the ideas that sort of go along with the mythology of Uluru? So here in this place, um, I guess it's like a lot of the Aboriginal and places around Australia. There's hundreds of countries with hundreds of languages and, and different ways of life because, um, you know, by the coast they had a different way of living, needed different skills. Um, so here in the centre, all of the stories that you hear, it explains how to live and how to survive. And the stories travel, so if they needed to get from one place to another, if they knew the stories, then they knew how to survive along that pathway. How do you describe the, the relationship between the, the local Indigenous community and tourism at the moment? Is, is it something that you think fits together well? Uh, if, if people come and visit, will they understand the local culture? Or is it more that you have to read about it or hear stories from guides like yourself? 
Yeah, I think if you if you take the time to read the signs, if you're walking around Uluru by yourself, um, if you read the signs, they are very informative. Um, but if you have a guide, then they can point out those extra details as well on the rock um, and talk a little bit more in detail about what the signs are talking about, but just those extra bits and pieces. And as far as the, the relationship goes, um, the Anangu people, they work inside the National Park and uh, as rangers and sometimes as artists, you see them coming into the cultural centre and different places in the resort. So um, more and more you see more Anangu people, but they're quite shy and, um, and I guess tourism is quite a new thing for them. The National Park was only established in the 1950s, so the old people in the community today still remember living in the bush. So it's been a quick transition, really. It's been a quick transition indeed. The first tourists came to Uluru in 1936, and it wasn't until 1948 that there was any kind of road to get here. By the late 1950s, there was a basic airstrip and plans for hotels had started. From that point though, tourism has grown quite dramatically, and now almost 300,000 people visit every year. Over that time, the authorities have become more sensitive to the original indigenous owners, and they've encouraged visitors to be the same. For example, there are large sections of the rock that you're asked not to take photos of because they're sacred areas for the Anangu people. And of course, there's the big issue about whether you should climb the rock or not. It's not actually forbidden, and there is still a path to get up there, but there are also big signs that tell visitors that it's insensitive to climb the rock, and the signs explain why it offends the indigenous community. Now, there are lots of ways to experience the rock. Uh, you know, certainly um, some people think still that you can climb up Uluru, and that's certainly discouraged. So what would you say to people who come here, that the, the best way to see and experience Uluru? Uh, personally, I think that the best way to experience the rock is to walk all the way around it. If you have the time, it's the best way. There are so many gorges and caves and trees, beautiful things that you don't see if you're just driving. And another great way to see it is if you take a scenic flight. Um, some people see it as they fly in on the plane, but if you want to get closer in the air, um, a scenic flight's wonderful as well because you can really get up closer to the, the gorges and, and get out amongst it. What's a good length of time to spend at Uluru? We're here for a couple of hours, which is perfect to get a taste and, and see it, but if you could really suggest someone do it the perfect way, what would you say? Uh, I think that two nights or three nights would be good because if you come for two nights then you can do at least one sunrise and one sunset quite easily uh, and then if you really want to go hiking you have another afternoon or morning to to fit that in as well there's there's a few different walks that you can do and um, and if you don't want to do it all in one go you could break it up into different trips so yeah two or three nights would be perfect for me Uluru feels like the spiritual heart of Australia not modern Australia but not ancient Australia either. It just feels like the core of the country that's always been here and always will be, and it radiates out a special energy. I think I need to return sometime to spend more than a couple of hours here. But for people on the GAN who don't think they'll have the opportunity to come back, this side excursion makes sense. Speaking of the GAN, it's probably time to fly back and rejoin it. You meet a lot of interesting characters in Outback Australia, on the ground and in the air. Our pilot, Brenton, who I introduced you to earlier, is one of those people. As we head back to Alice Springs, let's learn a little bit more about him. So you flew us out to Uluru today. Mm -hmm. um, 
What was your first reaction when you saw Uluru from the sky out of this plane? Oh, look, it's a, it's a rather impressive landmark. Not only is it impressive to look at, but it's just an icon of Australia. So seeing it up close and personal and, and being able to to sort of depict on the view that you get by, by flying the aeroplane around is definitely something you can't can't do from the ground. So, uh, And now what got you into, into flying in the first place? Yeah, so um, grew up in, in regional uh, Queensland and uh, grew up initially in Townsville where we had the military and civilian airfield so saw a lot of aeroplanes growing up and then uh, we had the uh, Royal Flying Doctors come and help us out one day uh, when I was working on a station about 300k west of Townsville and uh, just seeing what work those guys do and, and how much of a lifeline they were really got me thinking that maybe this is what I want to do. And so what's the aim now looking ahead? Are you going to be uh, flying around Uluru for a while? Yeah, so my, my goal is to do this sort of flying and uh, and work throughout the outback, which is, uh, I haven't done a lot of uh, desert outback type stuff, mainly rural Queensland and sort of Lake Eyre and that sort of area. Um, so get a bit of experience up and then go and knock on the door of the Flying Doctors and see if they can help me. Yeah, cool. Okay, well thanks very much. Appreciate it. Not a problem. If you haven't heard of the Royal Flying Doctor Service before, you should try and find out a bit more about it. It's a non-profit organisation that provides medical assistance in remote areas that are best accessed by plane. Anyway, that's all from me for now. It's time to pop back to the GAN and get ready for a special dinner this evening here in Alice Springs that is off the train and under the stars. More on that next time. Next episode, how do you feed 300 people on a train for four days? I'll take you into the kitchen and behind the scenes of the food service on the train, including how the restaurant managers like to play matchmaker. You need to sort of have that sense of knowing different personalities and, you know, like I love to have a joke and I love to make people laugh. And you, you have to know the right, right way of doing that you know, and, and the right people. That's all coming up on the next episode of Journey on the GAN. In the meantime, it would be great if you could subscribe and review the podcast and share it with anyone you think might enjoy a trip like this. I'm Michael Turtle from the Travel Blog, Time Travel Turtle. Speak to you soon. <laughs>